0: well please turn with me in your bibles to acts chapter 27 we're looking at the whole chapter this morning and you can find it on page 936 there in the pew bibles we have come to our next to the last sermon in the book of acts next week we will finish up the whole thing uh lord willing and uh, we're excited about that. And, and I hope that uh, through this time, I mean, we've been in Acts since October of 2016, right? Is that right? Two, or is it 2015? I forget. 15. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. But we should have more than ample teaching and training so that we know, without a doubt, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission of Christ. I pray that just as I have been, you too have been encouraged to trust the Lord and to see His grace at work in our lives as we prayerfully lean upon Him, as we see evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, as we fulfill that joyful call to make disciples of all nations for the glory of Christ and for our joy in Him. Now, many of you have been wondering what comes next, okay, and so... um, Starting May, the first Sunday in May, per Kyle's need to start at the first of the month, uh, we are going to start an eight-week series called, or I should say they, are going to be starting an eight-week series called Integrating Faith. And the goal of this series is to help us to incorporate what we say that we believe with practical aspects of our lives. Things like sex, and marriage, and, and leisure, and work, and uh, communication and all that kind of stuff. And, and after that, uh, and, and that will go, I should say, that will work in conjunction really well with the summer foundations course, Applied Theology, that those things will align really, really well. And then after that, Lord willing, I will start a series on the book of Hebrews, okay? Now, during these eight weeks that I will not be filling the pulpit, I will be doing other things like driving my Jeep and playing baseball. Uh, and also doing things like leading the preaching lab, and uh, there's some particular things that we're going to be doing uh, at the associational level that I need to be able to give more concentration to. For example, we are working on a partnership with First Baptist Leroy to help them to replant that church, and so uh, I need to give more attention there. Also, um, uh, a friend of ours, some of you know him, uh, Luke Lustfeld, has a desire to plant a church in Onarga. And so I'm helping coach him through that process and assessing him as to his readiness for that task. And so I'm going to be using the summer to spend more time uh, doing that as well. Also, I'll be, you know, spending some time working on the building. So if you want to get your hands dirty, right, you're welcome to join me doing fun things like uh, sump pumps and, you know, things of that nature, you know, all, all that joyful um, repair stuff. Um, So I'll be doing that and playing baseball as well. But this morning we are in Acts chapter 27. And I hope you all are eager to hoist the mainsail and ready the maps and charts because this morning's passage could be entitled an introduction to early Mediterranean seafaring. As if all of those travel journals that we had looked at in chapters 18 through 21 were not boring enough, now we have 44 long verses dedicated to the same type of thing with all of this, this detail and terminology that only an ancient Near Eastern sailor could understand. And You look at that and you might wonder, what on earth do we do with that? Now, don't get me wrong, this passage would make a great movie. Right, I mean, a, a great sea adventure drama kind of thing, like uh, Perfect Storm meets Swiss Family Robinson, kind of mixed together. Right, uh, I mean, just lots and lots of stuff going on. Uh, there's all of these things happening. Like they're they're they have difficulty in this voyage. You're know, making their way. They run into this huge storm. They thought they're all going to die. Paul says, "Let's stick together and eat some food because God told me that we're going to lose the ship, but we'll sit, You know, our lives will be spared." The ship ran aground, but they all made it safely to land, right? Now, no doubt Tom Hanks could have won an Academy Award for his role of the Apostle Paul if this were a movie, but it's not. And so what on earth do we do with it? We just kind of shift into high gear, truck on through, and move on to what's next and pray, Lord, help us not to be shipwrecked. Well, the key verse for us in this passage is verse 25. This is how we think of applying this very specific historic event to our lives. It says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be as, exactly as I have been told. You see, we may never travel the Mediterranean, but we all experience dangers and storms in our lives that might lead us to be tempted to abandon all hope. It might lead us to the point where we are about to make shipwreck of our faith. But you know, it's in those times when we learn to see God's presence, when we see His provision, His protection, His plan, it tests what it is that we truly trust in, what we believe, and through it, we get to experience God's deliverance. We get to proclaim God's deliverance in ways that we never could when the seas were calm when the winds were, were pleasant. And so take heart, have faith in God that it will happen exactly as we have been told. Or to summarize this passage in a slightly different way, despite life's many dangers, we can trust God to deliver. Despite life's many dangers, we can trust God to deliver. And so may we take heart to believe God's good and sovereign plan as we read Acts chapter 27 beginning in verse 1. Now given the fact that this is a longer passage, I'm going to read it in sections and so I'll read it, we'll kind of talk about it, we'll see how it applies to our life, and, and then keep on moving. And so first, what we're going to see in verses 1 through 20 is the reality of sailing into danger. So Acts 27 beginning in verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship from Adramidia, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, we're going to stop right there. What does that mean, sail under the lee? It's basically sailing close enough to shore that the land helps to protect you from the wind, right? The winds were against them. They sail along the lee. They're protected from the wind, okay? So there you go. Terminology for the day. We'll take a quiz afterwards. Now that I lost my place. All right, verse 5, and when they had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra at Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. As the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lysaia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, that's the Day of Atonement, so it's like late October, winter's quickly approaching, uh, Paul advised them, saying, "'Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives.'" But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. I mean, They lifted their anchor, they set sail, and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Basically, we let the ship go where it may. It's bouncing all over the place, right? Then fearing that we would run aground on the Sirtis, Sirtis is a dangerous area along the coast of North Africa. It's about 400 miles long where there's low shoals. The ship could easily run aground. Think, uh, think Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, that one scene where there's like those ships moving really slowly. And there's all that mist on the ground and, and the crew, crew is all like super quiet. And the parrot says, dead man, tail, no tails. You know, there's that scene from underneath with all the sunken ships and the sharks and stuff. That's the Sirtis, right? So just picture that in your mind. And so they lowered the gear. They, they let down the sails. They threw the sea anchor overboard to kind of, basically they're hitting the brakes. They're trying to slow this whole thing down because they didn't want to run aground. Thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They started throwing all the goods that they were shipping overboard because, to lighten the load so that they wouldn't sink. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And so this is really bad because, like, the tackle, you kind of need that stuff to survive, right? The, the cargo, you lose money if you lose that. But the tackle, you're really up a creek. Okay? So they did that, and when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so point number one, part of God's plan for our lives includes sailing into danger. Because when we think about the apostle Paul's life, you've got to wonder to yourself, man, when is enough enough? I mean, for the last few chapters, from chapter 22 on, things have just not gone Paul's way. Now, Paul has, has made his defense at this point numbers uh, of times before Gentiles, before the children of Israel, and even last week before King Agrippa II, and no one has been able to find any fault. No one has considered anything within him deserving of death. Agrippa even said to the Roman governor Festus that Paul could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar, and yet he has remained these two years under custody not free to go anywhere to do anything, people threatening his life. And so now at last, after two years of sitting in prison without charge under Felix, and now after months, as Festus made arrangements for Paul's appeal to Caesar, Paul is finally, finally, after all this time, able to start making his way towards Rome, just like Jesus said that he would over two years ago. Let's think about that. You know, God could have just put him in a boat, right? I mean, he was already most of the way there. If you think back to Acts chapter 19, verse 21, okay? At that point, Paul knew that he was gonna go to Rome. It says that Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. So he is almost there, right? That journey would have taken at most a week by land, not by sea right? That's the trip you want to take. But instead, what we see happening is rather than continuing to go west, young man, he actually went back east to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also turn back around and go back west to Rome. Why is that? Chapter 20. In Chapter 20, he told the Ephesian elders, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, but only that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I know I'm going to Rome, but I gotta go to Jerusalem first where imprisonment and afflictions await me. Put yourself in that, that seat. What, what would you be tempted to do? I think like I would bypass the whole Jerusalem thing and just head on north, right? Go to, go to Rome, still obeying God's will because he wants me to go to Rome, but Paul doesn't. He embraces the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and he obeyed and was imprisoned and afflicted, left in prison for two years, right? His life was almost taken from him at least two times, until finally he appealed to Caesar, and he had a Roman governor that actually listened. So by the time we come to this point, it now actually seems like it might be smooth sailing from here on out. Okay. Okay. Two years in prison. I experienced much affliction. Finally, I'm on a ship and I'm heading to Rome. Verse 1, the decision was made that they should head for Italy. In God's mercy, Paul was put under the custody of a kind centurion, Julius, who gave him some liberty Paul had at least some good travel companions with him. There's Aristarchus, the Thessalonian, right? We remember him from Acts chapter 19 when he was dragged before the riotous mob in Ephesus. Paul would call him in Colossians chapter four, verse 10, his fellow prisoner. So poor Aristarchus, that guy could use a Mediterranean sea cruise, right? He could just, you know, he could really use a vacation from his problems. I got all these movie it's coming in my head. It's bad. Uh, and he also has with him Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and we know this because Luke uses all of these pronouns: as we, us, ours. We put out to sea, and he gives us a whole lot of detail: names, places, uh, even his own participation along with the crew at times to help save the ship. And So sure, uh, you know Paul's got these great companions, and given the time of year, it was rough going because of the winds were against them. But they got to stop and see some of their friends in Sidon, and that was nice. But regardless, Paul is on his way to Rome now, finally at last, and so it's smooth sailing from here on out, right? But the trip started going from difficult to worse. At first, the wind slowed their travel by days. They coasted with great difficulty, and they finally made it to a place called Fair Havens. Now, you hear that. What do you think? Let's stay here. This is a fair haven. I like this, right? But when they realized there was not enough provisions for them to winter there, they had to take a chance and and make their way further. But it's dangerous, right? Travel's dangerous due to the wind and storms because of the, the approaching winter months. It's already after the fast, which is the day of atonement. So think it's like this is after Halloween, the leaves have all fallen off the trees, and you're just waiting for the snow to start coming down, right? And so Paul, who at this time has the maximum amount of frequent flyer miles that you could ever hope to attain, right? He's beyond platinum. You know, he's kind of like, you know, universal... World traveler guy at this point. Uh, you know, he, uh, he's already been shipwrecked three times and adrift at sea before because when he wrote 2 Corinthians, he wrote that before he went to Jerusalem. So this is actually his fourth shipwreck that we're reading about. So he's got some experience in this, right? Paul, the experienced world traveler and survivor of shipwrecks, advises them in verse 10 Look, I've been here before and I perceive. That the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also our own lives. Paul knows this because he's been there, right? But the centurion does what any commander would in that situation he listens to the pilot and to the owner of the shipping company, right? Just like any. Traveler with his platinum card comes up to the cockpit, knocks on the door and says, I think we need to do this. And, and the pilot turns to him and says, what does that button do right there? Oh, you don't know? Okay, please take your seat, right? That's what happens. And they decided, they knew it was a risk, but they decided to put out to sea in the chance that they could reach the better port of Phoenix. Not to be confused with Arizona, where there is no sea, but Phoenix, the westernmost port in Crete. And at first, they think they're all good, right? I mean, the south wind's gently blowing. That's really nice. They suppose they'd obtained their purpose. We're actually going to make it to Phoenix. But soon, a man named Tempestuous Wind called the Northeaster struck down from land. And if you name it, you know it's bad, right? It's bad. And it was. This is actually where we get our word typhoon from. Okay. This is a violent storm. It sends them bouncing across the Mediterranean. They, they almost lost their dinghy. They thought the hull was going to break apart, right? So they, they wrapped that whole thing up, tied it all up so that it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't break uh, as they were driven along. And it got so bad that they started throwing stuff overboard. And finally, they came to a place in verse 20 where all hope of our, and Luke says our All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They all thought they were going to die. This is Luke and Aristarchus and Paul and the rest of the 276 persons aboard that ship had all abandoned hope of being saved. They'd already done everything that they could right? The cargo and the tackle were gone. They were at the end of themselves. There's nothing that they could do at this point except wait it out and pray that the day would come, right? That's all they had. Verse 33 will tell us that they went on for two weeks in continued suspense of their lives and without food, trying uh, to ration it, or perhaps they were so sick from the storm that they couldn't even eat. But for two weeks, they were starving in this violent pit of despair, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I've got to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like that? That there's nothing that you can do to save yourself and that you are just praying That you can somehow ride this storm out. That you could weather this whole deal. That God would just release you from this. But but it's been two weeks without sun or stars or food. And the the tempest still lays upon you. And there is nothing that you can do. And you are in utter despair. Does that stick with you? Sometimes God does call us into hard things where we willingly enter into danger, the way that Paul had to go to Jerusalem where imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. But sometimes, sometimes God brings the storm to us. We find ourselves sailing into danger. And despite all of our best efforts, this tempest is unavoidable. There's nothing that we can do about it. A sudden illness, a terrible accident a catastrophe, a disaster, or even death strikes down upon us, and there is nothing that you can do. Now, it is nothing that you have intentionally done. It's not the result of your foolish rebellion or your sin, but you are sailing into danger, and there is nothing that you can do to avoid this storm, and you find yourself being tempted to abandon all hope. Now, friends, we'll, we'll get to why God does that in a minute. But for right now, when you find yourself sailing into a danger that you did not cause, okay, there are plenty of dangers that, that we foolishly put ourselves in, but this is a storm that you didn't cause. There are a few things that you need to remember. One, this storm is not your You didn't cause it. It's not because God is mad at you. God was not mad at Luke. God was not mad at Aristarchus. God was not mad at Paul when he brought this Northeaster down upon them. But God had plans for that storm that they could not possibly comprehend. I mean, just for one, the storm would result in Paul bearing witness to Christ on Malta, a place where he had no intention or plan of going. And yet, there he is. You see, the storm was not karma, it was not God getting back at you because you're a bad person. A lot of times when storms befall us, that's what we think. God, what did I do? What did I do wrong here that I'm finding myself in this position? We don't see that happening here. You know, Paul is not saying, God, I I know like I messed up big time and that, you know, I deserve this, but please be merciful to me. This happens and it's not connected to him at all. Just like Paul being bit by the viper on Malta was not a sign that justice had not allowed him to live. Just because bad things happen in your life, it does not mean that God is against you. Two, the goal of our salvation in Christ is not a storm-free or danger-free life. Guys, we, we, we know this intuitively, but in reality, we live something very, very different. God never promised us that if you just come to Jesus, then your life will be tempest-free, that nothing bad will ever happen to you. Now, we kind of know that. I mean, we, we, we recognize that. But when the storm continues to rage, how often do we live as those who have abandoned all hope? We live just as hopelessly as the unbelieving world around us. We know that God hasn't promised us a danger-free life, but we still want it so bad that we fail to hope in God when the storm rolls our way. In fact, you might even be going against the path that God wants you to take because you are trying so hard to live a life free from danger that you're not even open to the Lord's direction and purposes for you through that storm. Do you get what I'm saying here? We're trying so hard to go the other way that we can't even possibly imagine that God wants us to go through it. So we run. We run away from the very means that God has in our lives to teach us more about him and more about ourselves and to use us for his glory and for the good of others and for our joy in him. Because we are trying desperately to hold on to that notion of a danger-free, a storm-free life. That's, all, that's what I really want. God, he's okay, but I want that life. A third point to remember when you find yourself sailing into danger is that God is in the purpose or in the process of bringing you to the end of yourself So that you can see that he has always been there. So often we try to live lives that are not stretched beyond our own capabilities, right? We want to live in this bubble where it's like, I'm self sufficient, I've got this covered, don't need God don't need anyone else, I'm just fine on my own right where I am, I'm safe, I'm good. But Fritz, that's not having faith in God, that's having faith in yourself. But in situations where we're forced to give way, and we are just driven Along when the brakes are on, all the cargo, all the tackle has been jettisoned, you are beyond yourself. So often that's when you finally open your eyes to see him. Think about the impact of that. Think about these sailors made their lives upon the sea brought to the end of themselves and they're able to hear this message from the Lord. Think about the Roman soldiers. Think about the the prisoners who were there with them. Think about even the impact that had on Luke and Aristarchus and Paul to know that God is with them in the storm. So sailing into danger... Is often when our faith is put to the test. And second, that's when we see whether or not we are truly trusting God's word. Now, again, they had abandoned all hope, but God, our hope, had not abandoned them. Look at verse 21. So since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship." And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Friends, God is always with us. His promises, His provision, His plan, His purposes are sure. But So often we forget that. So often we still turn back to ourselves. And so in God's mercy, He reminds us because He's faithful. These 276 men were lost in the middle of a stormy sea. They had no idea where they were, but God knew exactly where they were. Just like Psalm 139 or the Old Testament book of Jonah, there is nowhere that we can run or nowhere we can flee from the presence of God. Psalm 139 tells us, If we were to take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, these guys were lost in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, his hand will lead us and his right hand shall hold us. In this case, God sent an angel to convey his word. And again... God promises Paul that he will deliver him. He tells Paul of his providential plan. You must stand before Caesar. This is the same plan that 26 years earlier at Paul's conversion... The resurrected Lord Jesus told Ananias to tell Paul that he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear witness to my name before Gentiles and before kings, including Agrippa and Caesar and the children of Israel. Two years earlier, chapter 23, as Paul sat there in custody in Jerusalem, it was the resurrected Lord Jesus that appeared to him and stood by him And said to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And here we are now, two years later, God has revealed yet again his good and sovereign plan to Paul and to us. You must stand before Caesar. So because God has revealed that plan, we can take heart and have faith in God that it will be exactly as we have been told. But not only do we see God's promises, His presence, His providential plan, we also see God's generous provision. You mean, look at that. What do you mean provision? I mean, sure, they lost the ship. Yes, they were run aground on some island. But still, they all were saved. And God didn't say that only Paul, only Aristarchus, only Luke would be saved, but all of those who sailed with them. Now, we don't know who these 276 people on this ship were, but we do know that the majority of them were not Christians. Idol worshipers, Egyptian sailors, Condemned criminals, cruel Roman soldiers, right? They didn't know anything about Jesus or the God to whom Paul belonged and to whom God or he worshipped, right? That's why Paul describes it that way, because they don't know. They don't know him. They were as lost as lost could be. God doesn't owe them anything, but in his mercy, God promised to spare them. Friends, can, can you not see that even in this storm, God is up to good for the sake of people that do not even know him? Beyond the fact that Paul will be delivered and Paul will stand before Caesar just as he had been told, is the fact that God is doing far more in the midst of that storm than we could possibly Imagine. And so when we find ourselves sailing into danger, it's important to look back and to remember God's Word, to remember His promises, to remember His presence, to remember His providential plan that always f- unfolds, just as He said that it would, and to remember His generous provision that extends even beyond His own people in ways that we simply cannot comprehend. My friends, We're not only to remember those things, to remember God's promises and presence and plan and provision, we are to then respond by taking God at his word. Do you understand that faith is more than intellectual assent? It's more than saying, yes, I agree that these things are true. Faith is trusting those truths over and against what I am experiencing it 's taking God at his word in ways that are clearly evident in the way that we live. Let me just look at paul it 's not as though Paul had been sitting there on that ship, all stoic in silence, arm crossed you know while everyone else is scurrying around trying to save the ship without any kind of fear or anything like that, you know, Paul's just like, I'm just waiting for my opportunity to tell you I told you so. So I'm just gonna sit here until you lose and abandon all hope and you start crying to your mommies and praying to God. And at that point, I'll stand up and say, well, like I said, you're a dummy. No, because Luke said all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And that means Paul's too. But when God's word by the mouth of an angel came to bear upon Paul's soul, Paul was able to take heart himself. And not only did Paul take heart himself, but then he was able to take that word and then encourage these other people who did not know the Lord to hear the word of the Lord and to take heart themselves. He told them, he proclaimed God's word to them for their good so that they might hope in God. The God to whom I belong, the God whom I worship revealed to me that there will be no loss of life among us. All of you will be spared and I will stand before Caesar. And so you too, take heart, which, is, which means to take God at his word. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You see, that testimony in the midst of this hope abandoning trial served as compelling evidence for the supremacy of faith in Christ. This Christ whom whom Paul worships is greater than Ra. He's greater than Zeus. He's greater than anyone or anything else that I might try to put my hope in right now. He's greater than this storm. He's greater than this ship. He's greater than this boat that I'm hoping to escape in. And he has hope and he has assurance that he will stand before Caesar and he's okay with that. And if all of this goes down just the way that the angel told Paul that it would, then there's no doubt that his God is God. Friends, more often than not, our greatest testimony of faith in God comes in the midst of suffering. It comes in the midst of those storms when When they ask themselves, why would that guy worship that God in that situation? That doesn't make sense. Unless it's true. Unless that God is with him. Unless that God is real and is strengthening him and is encouraging him and is with him. And that means that he's here with us in the midst of this too. So I can turn to him as well. Guys, you know that this is true in your life. If you've ever met with someone, a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, and they've been experiencing some big trial, some hardship, they've been suffering in some particular way, and you see them finding hope and joy in Christ, you're never left wondering, that guy's out of his mind, right? Why would I ever worship that God? You find just the opposite, right? Man, I'm encouraged. So thankful to see the Lord at work in that brother or that sister's life. And Lord, I know that if you're at work in them, that you are at work in me as well. And so you take courage. You take heart. That kind of faith only makes sense if the God he worships is real and is at work right now in his heart and among us, even in the midst of this storm. And so true faith takes God at his word over our experience. It testifies to the glory of God so that others might have faith, even in the midst of trials and afflictions, and it trusts God over our fears. Look at verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, that's where the Adriatic meets the Mediterranean there. They're bouncing all over the place. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms so that it was 120 feet to the bottom of the ocean floor. A little while farther, they took another sounding and found it 15 fathoms. So it's 90 feet. They're getting closer to running aground. And the And fearing that they might run upon the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern, which is the back of the ship, and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, that's the front of the ship, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved." Basically, we all live together or we die together. Even that says something to trying to survive storms of life on your own. We weren't meant to endure these things. We were meant to endure these things together. But at this moment, their hearts were being tested. Would they give themselves over to their fears? Would they try to save themselves on this ridiculous little boat if this big ship could not survive it? Would they deceive their shipmates in a feeble attempt to save their own skin at the cost of their shipmates' lives? The storm and dangers that we face are opportunities to check our faith. What do we trust more? Do we trust God or do we trust our fears? Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Friends, if you need a practical demonstration this morning of what faith looks like, there you go. Taking God's word, trusting him over your fears and cutting loose any effort to save yourself. I am not going to try to survive in that lifeboat and make my own way. I am going to believe God and all that he has told me. But not only was this motley crew encouraged by Paul's faith to trust over and against their fears, they were also strengthened by his Christ likeness. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. As you can see Paul's compassion, you can see his concern, his sincerity of heart towards these people. And in verse thirty-five, ask yourself, who does this sound like? It says, when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all two hundred and seventy-six persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship throwing out the wheat into the sea. It was that act of taking bread, of giving thanks, breaking it and eating that helped the two disciples on the road to Emmaus recognize Jesus in Luke chapter 24. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he wants us to make that connection. That act of Christ-likeness, expressing love and thankfulness to God for his provision, even in the midst of the storm, that is what encouraged these 276 men to eat and then to obey by throwing their remaining provisions into the sea. And as I read this, I, I couldn't help but remember an old hymn that we used to sing in my church growing up, where it says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Friends, the call of the Christian faith is not simply a call to get you to accept certain teachings from the Bible. God created the world, check. Man sinned against God, check. Jesus is the Son of God, check. Who died for sins, check. And rose again to judge the living and the dead, check. Either for eternal salvation or eternal condemnation, check. Yes, I believe all of that. I also believe all that stuff about a global flood and plagues and waters parting and some guy in a belly of a fish and miracles and resurrection and angels and demons and all that. I believe that. The call of faith is a call to trust God and all of His Word and to obey it, even when everything that you experience is screaming, Don't. Don't trust God. Don't take Him at His Word. There has got to be a better way. Do not obey. But, friends, even in the midst of the storm, This is what God intends for his glory and for the good of others in ways that we can't even begin to see and for your joy in him. If you don't trust Jesus, you won't be happy in Jesus. If you don't obey Jesus, you won't be happy in Jesus. We want to be happy in Jesus. We just want to be able to do that without trusting him and obeying. But there's no other way. God is teaching you through the midst of this storm as you trust God and take Him at His word to truly worship the God to whom you belong. To find your joy and your contentment and your hope and your gratitude and your happiness in Him. That's what he's teaching you to get you to the place to where you can actually say, I know, I firmly believe and I'm willing to obey the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship, that this is all going to work out for good, that you can take heart, for I have faith that it's going to be exactly as we've been told. That's what he wants to do in each and every one of our lives. But we must trust him. God does this not because He's mean, but because He is good. And so when sailing into danger, we trust God's Word. Third, so that we can experience God's deliverance. As we see the effect that this had on on not just Paul's life, but the life of the crew, the crew took courage and they trusted God's Word. Right? Verse 39 And now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but hey, who cares, land ho. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosing the ropes that had tied the rudders. They had tied the rudders down in order to go in a straight line when the storm was throwing them all about, but now they wanted to steer for the bay, so they removed the ropes, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach, the four sails, that front little sail which is all they had left on the front to just kind of hopefully kind of get them in that direction but striking a reef they ran the vessel aground the bow, again the front of the ship stuck and remained immovable but the stern, the rear end was being broken up by the surf the soldier's plan then was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape and at this point If you're Paul, you've got to be thinking, you are kidding me. I'm the reason why you're still alive. Even when you are obeying, even when you are trusting God's word, it doesn't mean that you won't find a sword at your throat. But again, in God's providence, according to God's plan, even Through the thoughts and actions of this unbeliever Julius, the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land, exactly as God had foretold. Again, we see the faithfulness of God and happiness in Jesus doesn't mean that there won't be risk. You can fight for the salvation of some who will then turn and try to slay you in order to save themselves. But our obedience is not dependent upon theirs. No, we who belong to Christ are called to set an example and to show mercy to those who do not. Again, we see that God works through every and all means to accomplish His purposes. It wasn't random chance that this kind Julius was placed in authority in that moment. It wasn't simply the good nature of this centurion that brought Paul and company to safety. Nor God had foretold that this would happen while they were still abandoning all hope, thought that they were going to die in the midst of that storm. And it was the angel who said, behold, God has granted you, Paul, All those who sail with you, including this centurion. And so it wasn't the centurion that spared Paul. It was God who saved them all. It was God who delivered. It was God who brought them all to safety, to land, just as he had told them. Guys, Over and over and over again in Scripture, we are told of God's deliverance. I mean, you can't read the pages of Scripture and not be told one story after another, after another, after another, about how God delivers His people, how God is faithful, how God never leaves or forsakes, always accomplishes His plan and His purposes, right? We read this great sea adventure, and we affirm that God delivered these 276 persons safely to land, but it's another thing to experience God's deliverance in your own life life. To know that that God is is my God who's delivering me. That deliverance cannot be experienced apart from the trial. You get that right? If you're never in a situation where you feel like you need to be delivered, you're never going to see your need for deliverance. If you're never in a situation where you are extended beyond yourself, beyond your own capacity, where you know, there is nothing that I can do here, right? I am giving way and being driven along, right? If you're never in that place, you will never truly recognize your need for deliverance and the only one to whom you can hope. Because I've got it. Got my little lifeboat, got my dinghy, and I'm ready to go. If you don't see your need for deliverance, you cannot know where your help comes from. And if you are trying to live a safe and secure life, free from any need, any sense of desperation, any pleading for rescue, how will you truly know salvation? And if you are so consumed, so consumed about lamenting the storm that is raging all around you, how can you proclaim the hope and glory of our Savior? Now what will happen is that you will worship the ship, you will worship the boat, you will worship the land that you have been brought to, you will worship any and everything else other than the God to whom you belong. Friends, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this one thing. Trust and hope must be learned. You don't just, you're not born with it. You're not going to wake up one day, magically, poof. I have all the hope and trust in the world. These things have to be Learned. And more often than not, they are learned through adversity. And we are the better for it. Your faith, God says, will be refined until it is more precious to you than gold. And so if you look, honestly, you you take a heart check right now and you say, you know what? I have faith, but my faith is not more precious to me than gold. What God is telling you right there is that I've got more work to do in you. And I'm going to be doing it. Right? You just signed yourself up for a marathon? Sounds like death to me. I'd rather go through a shipwreck than a marathon, I think. Not like Kelsey Deliverance has to be experienced. If you can save yourself, it's not deliverance. It's deliverance when God in his mercy rescues you, when all hope in any and everything else has been abandoned. It's then that God is seen for who he truly is. And we learn to find our joy in him regardless of the storm. And so if you are sailing into danger, trust God's Word and experience His deliverance. My friends, a far greater need that we all have than deliverance from storms and raging seas is the deliverance we all need from eternal death. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the effect that this physical deliverance had on the faith of those 276 people aboard that ship because his focus is on God keeping the promise that Paul's going to be in Rome, that he's going to testify in Rome. That's, so that's, that's, Paul, that, that's Luke's focus right there. So we don't, we don't know the details about these 276 aboard, but we do know that we all have an even greater need for rescue than being shipwrecked on an island, We've all sinned against God and we all need rescue from the rebellious nature of our own hearts. But what we could never do for ourselves, God has done for us in the perfect life, sacrificial death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He died for sin and rose again so that we might be forever reconciled to this merciful God to live forever with Him This God whom we've rejected, this God whom we've hated, he has loved us. He has not forsaken us. He is still with us in the midst of that storm, offering that promise of deliverance to us. If we would turn away from ourselves and turn to him in faith, if we would take him at his word and experience his deliverance. And I hope that you would all experience that today. There is no escape from your greatest danger apart from it. And so if you have any questions, I'd encourage you to talk to someone after the service. Friends, the dangers in life are unavoidable. And in fact, there are probably many more that if we are being faithful to God that we shouldn't try to avoid. But when sailing into danger, we can take heart and trust God in his word because he will deliver us from every true threat through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, despite life's many dangers, we can trust God to deliver. Let's pray for his help that we might truly take him at his word. Heavenly Father, we do. Again, thank you for this reminder, this very dramatic historical event, that you are a God who is always with your people, that you are a God of grace and mercy beyond comparison, who saves beyond our ability to grasp, who loves in ways that are unsurpassing to our knowledge. And you are at work in ways that we simply cannot comprehend. God, we ask for eyes to see, for ears to hear, for hearts that are warmed to you, so that we might truly trust in you, regardless of the storm, that we would take shelter in you knowing There's nowhere that we can go from your presence. The sacrifice of your son and his resurrection from the dead has secured for us eternal joy beyond all comparison. So even death has no sting. God, help us to not be overcome by fear or to look at this world only. And that even when we fail, even when all hope has been abandoned in our own hearts, that we would be able to see that you are God who is always, always faithful. And we know this because of the death and resurrection of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.